Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, plans to investigate charges that Governor Andrew Cuomo sexually harassed several women are moving forward. Tenant activists try to shut down Brooklyn Housing Court. And city council candidates have begun gathering petition signatures to get on the ballot. Good evening in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. In the news, New York Attorney General Letitia James is laying the groundwork for what is expected to be a months-long investigation into sexual harassment charges against Governor Andrew Cuomo. The New York Times reports that James will deputize an outside law firm to lead the investigation. It will have full subpoena powers to investigate charges leveled against Cuomo so far by three women as well as other individuals who may come forward. Cuomo is also facing a federal probe into his administration's decision to withhold data on the deaths of thousands of nursing home residents that occurred last spring after he required nursing homes to accept COVID-19 infected patients sent from hospitals. The governor, who won an Emmy Award last year for his daily COVID press conferences, has made no public appearances this week. Meanwhile, state budget negotiations entered their final month on Monday. Cuomo has long opposed higher taxes on the rich. Yesterday evening, protesters from the Democratic Socialists of America and New York Communities for Change rallied outside the home of Upper East Side State Senator Liz Krueger. They demanded that Kruger, chair of the Senate Finance Committee, support the Invest in Our New York Act, which would raise as much as $50 billion in new taxes on the wealthy. Now we can say, okay, COVID-19, there's been some hard shocks for the economy. And they tell us what we need is shared sacrifice. Well, why should working class people have to sacrifice? Did any of you close the hospitals before COVID started? No. Did any of you give the police a $6 billion budget? No. Did any of you threaten to lay off 9,000 MTA workers and cut the bus service by 40%? No. Did any of you threaten to raise the subway fare? No. Why should we sacrifice? Speak on it. Let's talk about the people who should be making the sacrifice. How about Wall Street? That was Robert Cuffey, co-founder of the Socialist Workers Alliance of Guyana and a member of the Afro-Socialist Caucus of the Democratic Socialists of America. Yesterday marked the 12th straight month during the pandemic that the rent was due for tens of thousands of New Yorkers who are not able to cover it. The Crown Heights Tenant Union responded by holding a protest outside the Brooklyn Housing Court where eviction proceedings have resumed in some cases. Um, it's the only thing that we've seen that does anything, um, you know, getting arrested, making a scene, apparently the only thing that, that moves our legislature. So uh, so in terms of the moratorium, it's been absolutely essential. Unfortunately, in terms of actually providing relief, uh, the state legislature hasn't done anything for us. That was Esteban Giron of the Crown Heights Tenant Union. We'll hear more from the Crown Heights Tenant Union after the break. Tenants aren't the only ones demanding their rights. On Saturday, laundry workers rallied in lower Manhattan calling on the owners of Leox Cleaners and Wash Supply to stop their union-busting campaign against immigrant women workers. And finally, city council candidates across the city began gathering petition signatures today to get on the ballot for the June 22nd Democratic primary. In Bushwick, community organizer Sandy Nurse and her team went out in the cold this morning gathering signatures to get on the ballot in District 37. Well, it is certainly cold out and very windy. Um, looking forward to tomorrow when it's supposed to be a little bit better. 
But we were out. We're out and about. We're at train stations. We're on sidewalks um, near busy high traffic areas, high foot traffic areas. And, of course, we are double masked, and we have some safety protocols for all our volunteers. And we, you know, got everyone checked in, check temperatures before they go out, sign forms. And um, we actually bring extra masks for other people in case we end up talking to people who don't have a mask. Um, so we're out here, you know, being cautious, being safe. But so far, no one is really, um, you know. Candidates must gather 270 valid signatures from residents of their district to qualify for the ballot. We wish all of the candidates the best of luck in their petition signature gathering. And, of course, stay safe out there while you're doing it. When we come back after this short break, we'll talk with activists from the Crown Heights Tenant Union about their latest efforts to cancel the rent and shut down the housing court. Wave of Mutilation by the Pixies, and you're listening to the Independence News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor in Chief. I'm joined today by my colleague Amba Gagarian. Amba, it's great to have you join us today as a co-host. Amba, you have to unmute yourself there. Thanks, John. It's great to be here with you and all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. Great. In our first segment today, the rent was due yesterday for the 12th month in a row during the pandemic, and tens of thousands of New Yorkers were unable to cover the rent through no fault of their own due to the pandemic and the economic crisis it has caused. However, eviction proceedings have resumed at the Brooklyn Housing Court in downtown Brooklyn, Yesterday, members of the Crown Heights Tenant Union faced off against a wall of NYPD cops. Joining us to talk about yesterday's action and a lot more uh, uh, are members of the Crown Heights Tenant Union. We have uh, Sarah Lazur, and I believe Tiffany King is also with us. Uh, Thank you for joining us on WBAI Radio. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. You bet. So for, for starters, uh, can you paint the scene from yesterday with tenants facing off against this phalanx of, of cops as eviction proceedings uh, uh, moved forward inside the, the Brooklyn Housing Court? What was it like out there on the street, and, and how did you all handle the situation? Yeah, um, there were a lot of uh, police officers there uh, when we all arrived at Housing Court, and Honestly, a lot of people were kind of nervous because um, the the NYPD has been um, uh, 
not exactly the most receptive to peaceful protesters. Um, I was one of the police liaisons and honestly, I was kind of nervous, but it all went really well. We had some really great speakers in front of housing court explaining why it is that uh, the eviction moratorium is sort of in place and sort of not. And to explain how dangerous it is for evictions to to resume. And then we uh, marched on to Borough Hall, where um, we called on a particular senator, Brian Kavanaugh, a state senator, who has an alternative bill for another rent relief program um, that does not meet the standards of the cancel rent bill that we want. And then we continued our march to um, 55 Hanson Place, which is the um, uh, the seat of the Department of Housing and Community Renewal, um, the uh, state agency that oversees um, rent regulation and oversaw the um, rent relief program, and uh, and also. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries office is there. And then we finished our march at Chuck Schumer's apartment in uh, Park Slope. And um, I, it was a really moving event. A lot of people, I guess, I'm bad at eyeballing it, but I'd say there were maybe a hundred um, uh, tenant organizers and tenants just calling on our elected officials to do the right thing and cancel the rent. Great. And could you explain a little bit more, Sarah, about um, what you mentioned before, that it's confusing that the eviction court is sort of reopened? Could you explain that and um, who this reopening will be affecting? Definitely. Um, So the courts uh, technically do have an eviction or did have an eviction moratorium until uh, February 26th. And that's according to the eviction moratorium bill that was passed in December after months and months and months of tenant activists going to housing court demanding uh, a moratorium and constantly getting a temporary Band-Aid solution from uh, executive orders from the governor, um, orders from, from the courts, the Office of Court Administration, and we kept having to go back to risk our lives in a pandemic to uh, force the courts to stop taking eviction proceedings. And um, this most recent time, there is technically an eviction moratorium. Um, however, if you want for your case to be um, to be paused until May first you have to fill out a hardship declaration. And it's telling that, um, you know, over a million tenants in the entire state are are behind on their rent and are potentially at risk of eviction for non-payment. However, only 2,300 people, the last I heard, only 2,300 people had actually signed filled out this hardship declaration, which leads us to believe in the tenant movement that um, that anything where you're expecting tenants to know about a program, to understand that they qualify for it, 
and then to fill out a form is very unlikely to cover everyone that needs to be covered for for everyone to stay safe. You, you know, one thing this reminds me of is uh, there was a lot of complaints with the COVID vaccination program uh, when it started uh, uh, in December and January that um, older people and, and people who didn't, uh, you know, have really sophisticated uh, knowledge of using the Internet uh, had a very hard time signing up for that as well. They really the 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 race and class disparities in our society uh, seem to surface once again uh, with these uh, complicated application uh, processes. Absolutely. And uh, there's just so much confusion. We're constantly getting more information than we can imagine for, for things that are being advertised on TV. Uh, but our government is not doing a good job of communicating to the population at large what is available to them how they can get their hands on it, who it's, uh, who exactly um, it's available to. And if you have any sort of um, language uh, uh, difficulty, um, or if you're just not connected to people who are in the know, you're not going to benefit from that program at all. I mean, Tiffany and I are both members of the Crown Heights Tenant Union, which has done amazing work to educate tenants about their rights to help them um, fight for them. But we're lucky not every neighborhood has something like the Crown Heights Tenant Union. Um, yeah, and it shouldn't be on on volunteer tenant organizations to try desperately to get this life-saving information into people's hands. Our elected officials need to do better. Yeah, and it would it could be pretty easy to to disseminate that information. I, I totally agree. I think there's a reason why it's not happening. Um, but and we're going to get to Tiffany in a second about the rent strike that she's on. But we just have one more question about the logistics of this. So yesterday, you were all blocked from actually entering the eviction court. So instead, you left on the door the bill um, proposed by State Senator Julia Salazar and Assemblywoman Yulant New. And how does that bill compare to another bill proposed by State Senator Brian Kavanaugh, who chairs the Senate Housing Committee? Great. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we left we left the Salazar bill on the gate to um, Borough Hall because we wanted to make sure that um, that Senator Kavanaugh realizes that a better solution does exist. It's the same solution we've been asking for for 12 months now, and that's the cancel rent bill. And the advantages of this bill are multiple. <laughs> um, for one thing, it doesn't put the onus on the tenants to fill out the forms in order to get um, in order to get it. It also doesn't, um, you know, cancel rent is something that would apply to all tenants universally. So nobody falls through the cracks. Um, you know, you don't end up being disqualified based on some weird percentage of the area median income that you have to fall in under before you lost your job, et cetera. Um, and 
another really important facet of this cancel rent bill, um, beyond the fact that it's universal, all tenants are able to stay in their homes and they get protection against retaliation from landlords for having owed rent in the first place. Um, it also puts the onus on the landlord instead of the tenant to fill out the paperwork. Landlords, they usually have access to lawyers. They just have more resources to, um, to uh, make sure that they're filling out the paperwork properly. And it's also just going to be easier to implement because there are millions of tenants in New York State and there are thousands of landlords. Now, DHCR, that, that uh, state agency, had a hard enough time processing all of the applications for the rent relief program from, from last spring. And even then, they couldn't even give out more than 40% of the money that was allocated for it. It's going to be easier if they're processing landlord applications for hardship money instead of processing millions of tenant applications for this money. And lastly, the cancel rent bill, it, its hardship fund money is going to end up in the pockets of mom and pop landlords, nonprofit landlords. It's not going to end up in the pockets, most likely, maybe if there's extra money left over. It's not going to end up in the pockets of giant international corporate landlords like Blackstone or Achilles. Those companies, they're, they're, they don't need the relief as much as the mom and pop landlords. Um, right. They just uh, act like they do. Um, <laughs> exactly. And, uh, um, re real quick here before, before we talk about this rent strike. Kind of quickly give people a sense of uh, how uh, Crown Heights Tenant Union uh, came into existence. Like, um, I mean, y'all are doing all this stuff right now, but y'all have been growing over the last few years, I understand. Sure. Uh, the Crown Heights Tenant Union started in 2013 because in this neighborhood, um, uh, long-term tenants, usually people of color, were getting pushed out by landlords who were hoping to deregulate the the apartments and bring in people who could pay more money um you know often tenants who were white and uh the Cronite tenant union was founded based on the principle that both long-term tenants and new arrivals in the neighborhood are both being exploited by uh unscrupulous landlords they were all being overcharged and um, displaced and we realized that the entire population of the neighborhood needed to be able to join forces and fight back and it's been really successful and we help organize uh, buildings um, tenant associations at the building level and then we join together at the neighborhood level and we're also involved in other coalitions because we don't just want to, um, you know, fight individual landlords. We want to actually get better laws, more rights, more protections. Um, and for that, we needed to join up with other groups that are uh, 
that are of like mind. Yeah. And speaking of fighting back, um, we're going to pivot here to another Crown Heights Town Union member who is online with us, Tiffany King. And Tiffany King has actually been on rent strike with her whole building, I believe, um, since a couple months before the pandemic hit because of how poor the conditions were there. Now, Tiffany, can you just tell us a little bit more about that, what it's been like, um, and the fight to cancel rent and, and, and fix those problems? Yes, it all started from when my next door neighbor, her grandson, almost died in an apartment due to mold. And the same condition she has in her apartment, I had in mine. It was just like horrible. But we didn't, I was afraid to fight because if you try to fight, they threatened to put you out. And they had did a legal eviction before they had put my children out while I was at work and then put the notice on the door. But I got back in the apartment, which they made me pay 2600 for marshal fees, which I didn't hear anything about that but anyway my next door neighbor her grandson was um eight years old at the time he stopped breathing because of the mold and um she found um she came across the crown high center union at the court thank god and she just started opening up doors for us because we was all scared to fight you know you you try to we don't have money like like sarah said they have lawyers where they can send their lawyers to do everything, but we don't have money to pay for paying lawyers to help us out. It's like you go down there and you just have to literally beg for help. And, you know, and I, I'm, I'm really like sickening behind this because I can't believe that this world has stopped. We out here wearing masks and gloves. We can't even go outside without covering our face, but yet they want to push the doors open for the courts and to bring in poor people that don't have no money like myself. I've been out of work for a whole year now. I've been at my job for 20 years and I've been out of work for one year. And they wanna push us back in court to get money for these landlords, but they're not trying to give us no help for us to like to try to pay them back the rent. I have filled out for the rent relief program. Nick Perry, we got him to sign on to the bill. He came out. And the only reason why he signed on to the bill because he took a tour of our apartments and saw the conditions how we was living. He didn't really say much, but I felt in his heart that he did the right thing to sign on to the bill. And this this is what we just go to. And, I, you know, I lost a lot of family. I'm sorry from jumping from jumping to one subject to another. I'm just no, really, like, great. stressed out behind this. And it's like, I don't think a lot of people are dying from COVID. I think a lot of people are dying due to stress. That's what they're dying. Because we don't know how we're going to feed, how we're going to feed our family. When I lost my job, I didn't get an unemployment check until months later. The little savings that I had, my little 401 okay, I don't have nothing in there no more because I had to eat. My, my four children had to eat. And it's like, I don't know what these landlords, what they want, like, give them the money like they really need to cancel the rent and mortgage because the world has stopped and they pushing it to let it start moving forward for the rich for the landlords to to benefit from it but what about us there's going to be so many people living off the living in the streets and living in their homes they just everybody the the wealth is just thinking about their money but what about us we do a chat and it says fight 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 housing is the human right and we have a right to be housed, not not the right to be put out in the streets because these landlords want money. This is what this world is about, money. I mean, if it's so much about money, cancel the rent. Let the rich cancel whatever they they running after. I, I don't I don't I don't even know how they can even do that to us. Anyway, where do they expect us to get money from? 
a $500, $300 unemployment check? How is that going to give them money for, for rent to live in these mold and leaks and broken refrigerators, broken windows, floors, no heat, no water? How dare they want to open up the courts? So we've been fighting many months and we're going to continue to fight until we get the victory. And I do believe that we are going to get the victory because there's a lot of people that are suffering. And I thank God for y'all having us. And I hope a lot of people is listening because a lot of people are, are not educated about that you can stand together and you can stand up and fight for your rights. You don't have to be afraid. And, you know, that's right. all, you know, I have to say. Right. We, we'll have to uh, wrap it up here in about 30 seconds. But uh, uh, Tiffany or, or Sarah, can you uh, let our listeners know where they can find out more information about Crown, Crown Heights Tenants Union and the tenant struggles that you all are involved in? Yeah, definitely. Um, you can take a look at our website, crownheightstenantunion.org. And every week we have um, we have a meeting on Zoom now ever since the pandemic started. And um, we're a completely autonomous, volunteer-led organization. Um, we all help each other. We all keep each other safe. Um, so people can come to our weekly meetings. You can send us an email. You can look at our website and get involved with this fight um, in, you know, whether you're on rent strike and have been for months, or if you just want to be part of the movement to cancel rent, because you know, it's the right thing to do for all of your neighbors. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you again to Tiffany King and Sarah Lazura for joining us this evening on WBAI radio. Thank, Thank you, you for having much. us. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so this is certainly a story we'll continue to follow. When we come back from this short break, we'll uh, take a look at Governor Andrew Cuomo's attempt to gut climate legislation that would require commercial buildings to rapidly decarbonize this decade and produce tens of thousands of good union jobs in the process. Big real estate doesn't want it, and Cuomo would kiss it goodbye if he could. Yeah. Hey. the cast of Rent, the musical, and I'm Amber Gargarian with The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find us online at indypendent.org. I'm joined by John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief, and you are listening to WBAI 99.5 FM.
Before we continue with our second segment, I want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this on the air. You can give by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to the website, give number two, wbai.org. And again, that phone number is 516-620-3602 or go to give number two, wbai.org. You can make a one-time donation or better yet, sign up on as a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 per month or more and help keep WBAI and shows like this on the air. There's so many great programs uh, will be on WBAI later tonight, every day, every night, every morning, afternoon. You make it happen, and we'll be sharing that phone number again later in the show. Yes. Hi, John. Thanks, John. And one more time, the phone number is 516-620-3602 or go to give the number to WBAI.org. And now turning to our second segment. In 2019, in a groundbreaking step for U.S. cities, New York City passed the Climate Mobilization Act, which is commonly referred to as the New York City Green New Deal. This act is basically a bundle of 10 bills that should keep the city in line with emissions reduction targets set by the Paris Climate Agreement. One of these bills in the act, Local Law 97, requires big buildings to cut their greenhouse gas emissions 40 percent over the next decade. The work needed to modify the buildings would create more than... 100,000 jobs for New York City over the next decade. Governor Andrew Cuomo snuck a measure in his proposed 2022 state budget that would gut this Local Law 97. As it is now, Local Law 97 will significantly cut New York City's greenhouse gas emissions by updating dirty buildings, as well as create tens of thousands of these needed jobs. As Cuomo and his real estate buddies hope to see the law change, they could thwart momentum toward building a greener, cleaner city with good union jobs. Joining us to speak about the importance of this issue and what exactly is going on is Pete Sikora, Climate and Inequality Campaigns Director at New York Communities for Change. Pete, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Could you explain to us um, how Local Law 97 should work and how Cuomo is trying to change it? Uh, Sure. Um, New York City's largest source of climate heating pollution is energy use in buildings. That's about 70% of the city's climate pollution. And an enormous amount of that comes from wasted energy. Um, So Local Law 97 covers large buildings, and it requires them to slash their energy waste. And that means raising their energy efficiency, which means renovating and improving buildings, which employs a lot of people. So that's why we uh, call it the potentially the beginning of a Green New Deal for New York City. And what kind of buildings are considered big buildings? Uh, uh, and who the- owns them? Well, it's a great question. These are buildings over 25,000 square feet. So that's like half the size of a football field. So like six stories and up basically is 25,000 square feet. Um, so everything from one world trade center down to like a six story tall building. Um, and so, uh, the, the real estate industry, uh, large building owners, uh, particularly entities like the Trump organization, uh, Durst, Rudin related, large, deep pocketed, um, owners own these buildings. And so they are now on the hook to clean up um, their buildings and slash the pollution coming from them. And what would cleaning up the buildings look like? 
Well, it depends on the building. Um, so the law doesn't tell you specifically what you have to do. Rather, it sets a level uh, per square foot of pollution that you can't exceed. So for depending on the building, that can include anything from operating the boiler correctly, uh, going from incandescent light bulbs to LEDs. Those are simple things. Um, more complicated things would be more efficient HVAC systems, better insulation, um, green roofs. Those are the kinds of things that will create large numbers of green jobs as buildings slash their pollution in the coming decades to comply with the law. Unless the governor gets his way and passes uh, this legislation that he's proposing attached to his budget, uh, which would gut the law. Right. And, um, you know, one thing that I don't think uh, people realize uh, with some of these, uh, you know, luxury super towers that have, have been built in recent years. I mean, I mean, you have things like, uh, you know, uh, heated swimming pools up on the top of the yeah. roof uh, all winter. Uh, yeah, just uh, unbelievable you know, luxury, you know, luxury uh, yeah. items that we can uh, uh, the 99 percent can scarcely imagine and. Part of them being able to enjoy that is they're just uh, burning up uh, unbelievable amounts of uh, energy. Yeah, that describes uh, one of those super tall uh, luxury towers, 157 on 57th Street, is per square foot one of the worst polluters in the city. It's a super polluter, and it's covered by this law. And um, while I, I haven't uh, got an apartment or anything in there, so I don't exactly know what's going on inside. Wait, there, 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 there's no, uh, there's no uh, community organizers uh, living at uh, one. You know, uh, not not so much. I don't think. You know, uh, maybe the very posh sort of community organizer. I guess. Um, yeah, I, no, I, heard, I mean, yeah, I heard yeah. A Rod and J Lo were moving out. So you know, <laughs> let's get let's get a place together, John. We should we should go in. Maybe. Uh, WBAI can uh, can float us if they get a lot of donations today. Yeah, um, that would take a whole lot of donations, and and, and I promise our <laughs> listeners we'll uh, put it to better use than that. Uh, <laughs> I just want to keep this uh, radio station on the air uh, first things first. Totally, totally. Well, you know, you make a really good point. So uh, buildings like the like Trump Tower uh, are also super polluters. Uh, Trump Tower is a good example of per square foot, a super inefficient building. So not only is it a big building that emits a lot of pollution because it uses its boiler and it, its electricity runs on a dirty grid, but also per square foot, it's extremely inefficient because it's uh, a poorly main, uh, run building and a poorly designed building from an energy efficiency perspective. So the law requires those types of buildings uh, to clean up because they are over the levels at which they should be polluting. So you can imagine the real estate industry does not love that. And so they've gone to the governor to try and uh, gut that law at the state level. Yeah. And speaking about the growth of luxury apartment buildings in New York and the real estate industry's impact on what seems like so much of our lives here, um, could you just talk a little bit more about Cuomo's relationship with them and why they might be influencing him? You know, it is a extremely close uh, relationship lubricated by enormous amounts of money. So the Real Estate Board of New York is the uh, kind of 800-pound gorilla of campaign contributions, uh, and all of its members, the large developers, are like 400-pound gorillas each. So between them, they've given over $10 million to Governor Cuomo's campaigns. And so he is delivering for them all the time by trying to hold back uh, good housing laws, gut existing housing laws, and in this case, try to eviscerate 
legislation that would start to begin what we hope will become a Green New Deal in New York by requiring these large buildings um, to slash their pollution, which employs many thousands of people. Yeah, can you elaborate on that a little bit and um, give us a sense of the the kind of jobs that would be done and, and uh, yeah, the, yeah, the it's really who would do them and the unions so, that might represent them. Yeah, this is this is construction and renovation work. So the kinds of jobs that are getting created here are first in assessment and design to figure out what to do with the building, and then all of the hands-on improvements in the building and the operations. So that's everything from electrical work to insulation to pipes to new HVAC roofs every kind of building trade job here um and is 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 implicated and so it's a lot of work and a lot of new jobs but these are very similar jobs to existing jobs just more of them so that's particularly important for our organization because we represent uh, a lot of people from low-income communities of color. Those communities are the first uh, to be fired and the last to be hired. Um, so the crisis has hit particularly hard in NYCC's membership. But if these kinds of policies are passed, there'll be more employment in construction and renovation, which will get people hired who otherwise wouldn't be getting work. Um, and it's a lot of work. It's tens of thousands of jobs this decade that will be created by this law. And we surely need those jobs. Um, yeah, very much so. It's a real, yeah. it's a real crisis out there. Yeah. Um, well, we will be wrapping up this segment in about thirty seconds, Pete. But quickly tell um, our listeners how they can learn more about this issue and what they can do to oppose it if they choose to. Well, you know, they can uh, go to um, New York State Focus and read a story that's on their website that describes the issue in detail. And people should call their assembly members and their senators and urge them to stop Governor Cuomo and Rebney's attack on Local Law 97. That's extremely valuable. Do it right now. Pick up your phone, call your assembly member, your senator at the state level, and urge them to stop Governor Cuomo's attack on Local Law 97. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Everyone make that call. And thank you, Pete, for joining us. We really appreciate it. And when we come back after this short break, we'll be hearing from the Indies Leah Duran about her latest article on anti-Asian violence in America, which is ever present since the onset of this pandemic. American city, you will find it very pretty. Just two things of which you must beware. Don't drink the water and don't breathe the air. Pollution, pollution, we got smog and sewage and mud. Turn on your tap and get hot and cold running crud. The halibuts and the sturgeons Being wiped out by detergents Fish gotta swim and birds gotta fly But they don't last long if they try Pollution, pollution You can use the latest toothpaste And then rinse your mouth with industrial waste Just go out for a breath of air And you'll be ready for Medicare The city streets are really quite a thrill If the hoods don't get you, the monoxide will Pollution, pollution Wear a gas mask and a veil Then you can breathe long as you don't inhale 
That was Pollution by Tom Lehrer. I'm John Tarleton with The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website, joined by my co-host, Amba Gagarian. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. Before we continue with our third segment, I want to again encourage everyone who values shows like this, who value community radio, who value peace and justice radio, to please call 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org and make a one-time donation or better yet, sign up to become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 per month. Again, that number is 516-620-3602, 516-620-3602, or go to give, the number 2, wbai.org. And I'm Amba Gergarian with The Independent, joining John Tarleton as a co-host today. Yes, and we need you to give right now at 516-620-3602. With your support, we can keep the Independent News Hour and all of WBAI's great programs beaming across the New York City area from Brooklyn to the Bronx, from Long Island to Staten Island. This radio station only happens because you make it happen from Queens to Crown Heights to Prospect Heights to Diker Heights to Washington Heights to Cambria Heights, from Inwood to Norwood to Longwood to Ridgewood to Midwood, all across New York City. Will you give today 516-620-3602? We need you. Once again, 516-620-3602. From Houston Street to Harlem to Hoboken to the Hudson Valley, will you give us a call today at 516-620-3602? If you are in Montclair, will you dare? If you are in Secaucus, will you get raucous for WBAI? Only you can pick up that telephone and call the magic number. That's right, John. It's 516-620-3602. Again, to our listeners, 516-620-3602. Or go online to give to the number two, WBAI.org, to keep community radio on the air here in New York City and 100 plus miles in all directions. And if you can't pick up the phone right now uh, and call 516-620-3602, Please do so at the end of the show. Right now, we're going to move on to our final segment. Since uh, uh, since the COVID-19 pandemic reached the shores of America a year, a year ago, our Asian-American sisters and brothers have faced an increasing number of violent attacks, including many directed at elders in their community. For some people, it's easier to scapegoat Asian-Americans for the pandemic than to blame their own government, which was woefully unprepared to respond to the crisis. This past Friday, members of the Asian-American community gathered in Times Square to speak out. Okay, that, that was uh, a speaker at the rally at Times Square on Friday evening uh, decrying Uh, violence against the Asian-American community here in New York and across the country. Now, the Indies, uh, Leah Duran, has been giving this a lot of thought. She is the daughter of a Korean mother and an Irish-Italian father. She spent most of her childhood in Korea before returning to the United States for college and has been in this country uh, ever since then. Uh, She currently has a really brilliant article up on independent.org that explores the complicated nature of her identity and the fear and confusion she has been feeling as Asian Americans face this increasing violence and hostility when they go out in public. 
Her article is called Being Asian American in a Time of Rising Hate Forces Me to Face My Own Divided Feelings. Leah, thank you so much for joining us on the show this evening. Thank you so much for having me. Sure thing. Can you start uh, just by uh, describing a little bit your own experiences uh, with this uh, uh, hate and hostility and those of uh, your family members as well since the pandemic started last year? Sure. I mean, I would preface by saying my own experiences have been mild, and I'm very fortunate in that. Um, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, or as we were getting more aware of the pandemic before it really started to change how we behaved here, I was telling a friend, I'm really nervous to wear a mask. I want to wear a mask because that's how we handle cold and flu season where I grew up. Everybody wears a mask. But uh by that point, there had already been a few attacks on people in the subway, on Asian people wearing masks on the subway. So I was really nervous to put a mask on and go out into my neighborhood, knowing that that, besides being Asian, would additionally make me a target. Um, so the thing that happened that I would say could be most unquestionably defined as like a coronavirus-related Asian prejudice event was my mom... <laughs> was at the mall in Boston. And as she got into the elevator, a group of teenagers uh, walked up to the elevator, saw her and started screaming about coronavirus and refused to get into the elevator with her. So she rode the elevator back up to the top of the mall by herself. And when she told me about that, she thought it was a really funny story. <laughs> and she, I don't think she could understand why I was so angry that that had happened to her. Yeah. Um, it's pretty angering. Hi, Leah, and thanks for coming on. And, you know, I think the confusion that you speak to in your article about speaking out about, you know, anti-Asian violence and prejudices I, has a lot to do with the fact that for decades, Asian Americans have been sort of held up as this model minority that has success successfully assimilated into the dominant culture and is financially, you know, prosperous. But if you look a little bit more closely at American history, there's a long history of virulent anti-Asian bigotry. Can you elaborate on that and also maybe speak to how some of these financial um, stereotypes aren't necessarily true? Definitely. Um, so I would just quickly to start with early history, I would go over some of the things that I brought up in the article, just sort of the classic examples of the American problem with anti-Asian sentiment. So 1871, uh, about, I think it was 20% of the Chinese men at that point living in Los Angeles were lynched because two businessmen having a gunfight over a woman uh, killed a civilian, a white civilian in the crossfire. So a 500-strong mob of men came into that area of Los Angeles and um, lynched uh, 18 Chinese-American boys and men. I'm sorry, it's 10% of the population. Um, what made this even more unjust was that there had been a statute passed by the California legislature in 1863 which prohibited Asian Americans from participating in court proceedings, either as witnesses or victims. So how do you pursue a case for justice when you are not allowed into the court? Um, and ultimately, some of them were convicted of manslaughter, but they were all released a year later when uh, the California Supreme Court overruled their convictions. Um, other examples are the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was signed into law by uh, President Arthur. And that was meant to block Chinese workers from coming into the country and 
you know, the refrain that we hear to immigrants over and over again in American history, it's taking white jobs. Um, so it was actually not removed until uh, 1943. And it was actually renewed every 10 years since it was uh, put in place. Um, in 1904, it was extended in perpetuity. So eventually this ended up with them creating something called the Asiatic Bard Zone, which covered whole huge swath of Asia all the way from Turkey to parts of Polynesia. And from any of those places, you could not immigrate here unless you were within a very narrow group of professions that were accepted. Right. Um, and, and you may have mentioned this, but the Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, you know, for our listeners, was actually the first act of excluding anyone um, from, from this country, um, which is, you know, I think says a lot. Yeah, and we have a lot of echoes that now with Trump's, you know, Muslim ban, the saying a ban on all Muslims. That's something that is a throwback to 100 years ago. Right. Not allowing anyone in from the southern border, et cetera. Right. Yeah, it's pretty unfortunate. So would you say that with this sort of like, you know, at least we're seeing more in the news that there's a lot of anti-Asian violence, anti-Asian American violence here. Mm -hmm. um, does it feel like you're being thrown back and you or do you think that the community feels like it's being thrown back into an earlier era that mostly seemed to be left in the past? Or would you say that there's a little bit of an upswing, but maybe it's just getting more news attention? I don't know. Do you have a take on that? I mean, it's I talk a lot in the article about the diversity of experience among Asian Americans. So I think that, yes, while some might fit that idea um, of the assimilated model minority that isn't faced on a daily uh, on a daily basis with their other status. There are also huge numbers of people who absolutely do and who probably would feel like they never got out from under the idea of their American otherness. So I guess that would come around to a more recent injustice, which is this idea of model minority, that we have been okay, or that we, through some sort of mythical universal work ethic of our people, have achieved things that other people can't. And it, you know, it really bothers me to hear people say that because, I, first of all, it erases the experiences of these huge groups of people. Like Asian Americans have the widest gap between our wealthiest and our poorest members. And, uh, right. Now it, um, we have a, a couple more minutes here and there's a little bit more ground. I want to try to cover with you. Sure. Um, in your article, you express uh, a lot of ambivalence about engaging with this issue. And in particular, um, that protests against anti-Asian violence, uh, could end up being marred by anti-blackness, uh, uh, what are you seeing that has uh, heightened your concerns in that way? Um, I think if you if you go to any article that is posted about this, anytime something happens to an Asian American and a news story is posted, the comments will completely disintegrate into uh, really upsetting mutual denial of each other's struggles by Asian Americans and by Black Americans. And, you know, I think that it's completely, it's valuable to point out that, of course, Asian American communities, many, like, do carry prejudice. Like, uh, the murder of Latasha Harland is brought up a lot as a case where Asian American 
uh, one Asian American group chose to protect a woman who had murdered a teenager rather than take accountability for what had happened. And there's, I, I think a lot of, uh, you know, our communities have inflicted pain on each other and we do have things to work through. My fear is that if we get into this game of needing to have to say that we didn't do those things or that those things were not done to us, we avoid those sort of painful steps towards healing the rifts between our communities. Um, and I, I, you know, there's a lot of things that made me hopeful too. There's one of the marches that I went to was organized by the Black and Asian Solid. They call, they're called the Black and Asian Solidarity March. And, um, right. We we have about uh, 30 seconds uh, max here left to, to go. Real one of the, real quickly, uh, one hopeful thing you, you point to in your in your article is uh, I think it's a safe walk program where people are uh, looking for non uh, police based solutions to uh, get, pr- pr- providing uh, public safety for people. Real quickly, can you say what that's about? Yeah, I love Safe Walks. I think Safe Walks is awesome. So it was formed by um, some members who'd come out of something called the Street Riders, who were some of them involved in Black Lives Matter. And this was a response to a string of attacks that had happened near the Morgan L train in Bushwick. Um, So because the police were not filling that public safety gap, this group stepped up to help neighbors, to help each other, to give each other safe walks from the subway. And since this spike in Asian violence, they have uh, expanded their efforts to Chinatown and also to Harlem. So they're fundraising to develop an app that will help people request escorted walks from their neighbors in a time where they may feel that their safety is in peril. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Leah Duran, for uh, coming on uh, the Independent News Hour this evening. We really enjoyed uh, talking with you about all of this. Thank you so much. You bet. So uh, this uh, just about wraps up our show. Um as we leave our listeners, uh, our, our final, final song will be Wandering Chan- Chinaman by Chris Kondo, uh, Ijma, Joanne Nobuko Miyamoto, and William Charlie Chen uh, from A Grain of Sand, Music for the Struggle by Asians in America, a 1973 album widely recognized as the first album of Asian American music. Uh, thanks uh, to my co-host, uh, Amba Gagarian. Also, uh, Rob Katz helped with uh, and, and Kenneth Lopez ho- helped out with uh, tonight's show. And uh, we'll be back same time next week. And uh, once again, uh, call that phone number, 516-602-3602. A 16-hour day just to try and stay alive And when I'd saved enough, I thought I was doing fine I lost everything I had in the crash of 29 Seven long years, gambling was my trade I'd wander from city to city on the money that I made. When I'd saved enough and thought that I was done, then came a world war in 1941.